All right. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Um, yeah, once again, just thanks for your prayers for the Philippines trip. Last Sunday, I was in Cavite uh, in the Philippines, which is about an hour, hour and a half south of Manila, depending on traffic. That's how you say everything in Manila. How long does it take to get there? Well, an hour, two hours, depends on traffic. It really is a range of like one to ten hours to go anywhere. Um, so we were in Cavite, and I went to a church by the name of Cross of Christ Salvation Gospel Ministries, which is one of the shorter church names in the Philippines. Uh, true story, and every Filipino church, rather than saying their full name, they just say the, uh, the letters, so they're CCGSM. So I was at CCGSAM, CCGSM, worshiping with the uh, community there. Pastor Jeffrey Joe welcomed me. Uh, it's a Sovereign Grace Church there in Cavite. It's just a wonderful time. I was just attending, worshiping, listening to him preach, half in Tagalog, half in English. I think I got most of the sermon. It was great just to be with God's people in the Philippines. And um, like I said earlier, I want to sometime have a, a more comprehensive kind of overview of what's going on in the Philippines because there's some very exciting things that God is doing with his church. That Sunday morning, Pastor Jeffrey was preaching from the book of Exodus. They went through Genesis last year. They're going through Exodus this year. It's uncertain whether that pattern will continue because it gets a little trickier once you get through Exodus. And uh, people aren't quite as enthusiastic about Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy as they are about Genesis and at least the first part of Exodus. But Pastor Jeffrey was preaching on Exodus chapter 4, and there's a little story in the middle of that chapter that most of you probably have never heard of, and if you have heard of it, you have dismissed it and walked away from it quickly because you don't understand it. Moses is on his way back to Egypt, and God tries to kill Moses. Whoa, right? What happened there? All of a sudden, God tries to kill Moses. Why? Moses' son, who was likely an adult, was not circumcised. Moses, by... But the terms of the covenant that God had made with his people was supposed to have circumcised his son, and he did not obey the covenant. And so God seems to decide to take out Moses there. And then Moses' wife, Zipporah, comes in and plays the hero of the story, circumcises the son, and God relents, and Moses and his family continue on to Egypt. And uh, Zipporah has this wonderful little term there where she says, now I have become a bridegroom of blood to you. And um, I just think that's an interesting phrase there. And I, I, was, I was sitting back at, at CCGSM going, this is not the sermon I expected to hear in the Philippines. Like of all the texts, in all the Bible, this is, but Pastor Jeffrey's committed to preaching through Exodus and it's there and if he skips it, people are going to notice well, here we are in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. Uh, this morning, you might get a little bit more of Professor Josh than Pastor Josh as I work through this passage. Um, it's just that kind of thing, and I just spent a lot of time exploring so many different details this week. I just might get Bible nerdy to an extreme on this one. We'll see where it goes. But before we get into this text, which is another text of circumcision, bloodiness, violence, Sorrow, it's, it's a hard text. Before we get into this text, I want to just take your attention to another text that will set us up for this one. And that is in Proverbs chapter 6. I'm just going to read two verses at the end of Proverbs chapter 6. And I want you to hear these verses. Just a great proverb, a statement of truth about a topic here. For jealousy makes a man furious. 
and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse you, you refuse though you multiply gifts. There's a warning there in Proverbs that jealousy will destroy a person. It will consume a person. And we're going to see that in this uh, rather interesting text in the book of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, as you've seen, and especially as you saw last week with the, the Goliath thing, if you were here, that was pretty cool. Uh, in 1 Samuel, there are some very familiar, very well-loved stories like David and Goliath, like the beautiful friendship of Jonathan and David, Samuel's call when he was a child, just great stories that many of us are familiar with in Uh, have been familiar with for many years, perhaps. And then there's chapters like chapter 18 and 19, which if you did read them this week, as I encourage you to do, you likely did at least one double take, perhaps a triple, quadruple, or quintuple take at times, shook your head and said, huh? That's kind of how you encounter much of the text in this passage, and I won't be able to explain or clarify everything in this text, mostly because very few of you are willing to stay until 2 p.m. We do, for the record, have a little forum that is emerging now on our Church Center app, if you're on there, and there's uh, some people that are engaging and asking questions, and if I don't answer the questions, I think Warren or Ebby or Tim will answer the questions, or already have answered the questions on that forum, been some good dialogue there, and there will be more dialogue that could happen as we finish and work through this passage. But forgive me if I, did not, if I do not answer every question you might have from this text. I think that would be impossible in a 30, 40-minute sermon or whatever we're going to get to here. We're going to cover the bulk of two chapters, though, 1 Samuel 18 and 19, And it is going to be a wild ride. It is a phenomenal story. It's a great narrative. Twists, turns, plot. You just, man, things are just going up and down and everywhere. And it's exciting and tense and difficult at times. It's also rather sad. It's a rather sad story because we've seen this movement through 1 Samuel of one character, Saul, and his demise. And so as we step into this text, let's pray. And then I'm going to take a step back before we get into the text and remind you how we got to this point, the scene in 1 Samuel 18, 6. Let's pray first, though. Father, we love your word. We love the scriptures. You have given us your word to reveal yourself. And we are grateful. Without your revelation, we could not know you. And you, in your gracious gracious mercy towards us, have given us truth about yourself, about your plan. And as we read passages, even like 1 Samuel 18 and 19, we get to hear from you about you. So would you do that this morning? Open our eyes, clarify confusion, and encourage us in the gospel this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys know this, that you're never supposed to start a book or a movie in the middle. Remember back in the days of the VHS cassette tapes? This is before even DVDs, before streaming. Um, So some of you, especially if there's kids here, you have no idea what these things were. 
But sometimes people would not, re- you had to rewind the thing in order to start from the beginning if you watched it further in, at a later time. So if you're going to watch a movie again or show or whatever you have on that, um, that tape, you have to rewind it. But sometimes somebody didn't rewind it, so you threw it into the VHS machine, the VCR, and it just started in the middle. And you're like, what is going on? I don't, you, you don't start a book or a movie in the middle because you don't know what's happened to get you to that point. And most often, I think you can fairly say all the time, that stuff is critical to understanding the middle and certainly the end of a story. Well, here we are. We're kind of in the middle of 1 Samuel, but we, don't want to, we can't just jump right into the, the, the story here. We have to set the stage a little bit, and I want to do it in a couple different ways to bring you up to, what has, to where we're at in 1 Samuel 18. So I'm going to do that by going back to the book of Judges, which chronologically would have happened right before the events of 1 Samuel. That was the the things that happened before Samuel. And at the end of the book of Judges, Judges 21-25, we get this summary statement of the conditions in the land of Israel at the end of the time of the Judges. Here's what it says. You've probably heard us say this before. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So if you read through Judges, you get example, example of that chaos in the land. It illustrates that mess. There's no king. There's chaos. At the end of the book, there are scenes of murder and war and rape and idolatry and essentially chaotic anarchy throughout the country. That's the background to the events of 1 Samuel as you walk into the book of 1 Samuel and are introduced to characters like Eli, the priest, and Samuel, the young boy, given to Hannah. Well, in the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel, that chaos continues. The priests are evil. Just just all kinds of horrible things. And so the people in 1 Samuel 8-6 people who there is no king over the people, the people say in 1 Samuel 8, 6, give us a king. We need a king. This is not working. Give us a king. And so God, their covenant God, who was supposed to rule over them as king as they obediently followed them, followed him, like, like so many in history, though, they continually rejected God's rule in favor of their own, and it plunged them into chaos and anarchy. And God, in his mercy, says, okay, you can have a king, but it's not going to be everything that you wanted. And so Saul is coronated. He becomes the major figure in the second movement of the book of 1 Samuel. And as Saul is coronated, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24, the people cry out, long live the king. I mean, you've seen those scenes throughout different media. Saul looks the part of the king. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome. He looks kingly. He doesn't necessarily act kingly, though, even from the get-go. There is cowardice in Saul, there is deception, there is disobedience, there is blame-shifting, and there is a host of other less-than-noble attributes seen in Saul, and they seem to escalate as his story and kingship moves forward. And because of that disobedience that Saul uh, undergoes, we learn, 1 Samuel 15, 23, continuing the story, God rejected Saul from being king. It's a stark, harsh 
point because there was no king. We need a king. We have a king. This man will no longer be your king. Of course, Saul doesn't necessarily agree with this determination, so he seeks to hold on to power. He continues to fight against Israel's enemies, and he winds up with the next God-selected king unknowingly in his company, David. You heard that story last week. You can just hear the trumpet sound as David enters the scene. David, he's got to be better than Saul, right? And as we'll see, it will take a while before David winds up seated on the throne. But eventually, God will declare to David in 2 Samuel 7, David's house and David's kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. David's throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16, a covenant that God makes with David that says, from your line there will be rulership, there will be a kingdom that will be established forever. Saul's line has been cut off, David's line has been fixed. Well, this doesn't mean that David himself will live forever. He dies at the beginning of 1 Kings. It does mean that David's line, that from David's line, there will come an eternal king. There will come someone who will rule forever. David's line will sit on the throne forever. A king will come from David's line who will reign forever. Well, who is that king? Is it David? No, he dies. Is it Solomon? No, he's, he's, he goes off the rails and he eventually dies. Is it any one of those other? no. No, it's not him, it's not him, and that's the rest of the Old Testament. And as the New Testament begins, the book of Matthew makes it quite clear in the first verse what's happened. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, the son of David. The son of David, who Matthew takes great pains to show his genealogy traced back to David and Abraham, The son of David is here. The king has come. That's That's a wild ride, right? The Old Testament in recent years and even in other times has received its share of criticism by modern readers. It's too violent, they say, too patriarchal, too misogynistic, too many other things. But the point of the Old Testament is first and foremost to point us to the son of Abraham, the son of David, a greater king, Jesus Christ. And if you don't know and follow and learn your Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you won't fully know all the truth and glorious hope we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus loved the Old Testament. He loved his Bible. I mean, kind of wrote it, so you loved it. But if you don't know the Old Testament, you won't fully know Jesus. He is the one who it was pointing to, who it predicted and foreshadowed, and he fulfilled that. Now, there's other ways to remind ourselves of the plot of 1 Samuel. So I kind of went past our section here and that, but up to this point, we've seen the fall of the priest Eli, who's just a bad guy. His house has been cut off from the priesthood. We've seen the rise of the prophet and priest Samuel as he grows from a little boy and becomes a leader in Israel. We've seen the downward spiral of King Saul while we've witnessed the beginning of a rise, often delayed, of King David. 
1 Samuel is just brilliant literature, and it portrays these rises and falls next to each other. So one final thing before we get to our text, and we've got a long text and I haven't even started on it yet. One final way to summarize this is to look at the activity in 1 Samuel of what is often translated as the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is at work in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And as those living in the age of the church, not ancient Israel, were often tempted to quickly associate the phrase, the Spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And I want you to just be careful with that association in this text. Just be careful. Not necessarily wrong, but you need to be careful and you'll see why. But here's what the Spirit of God is doing throughout 1 Samuel. When Saul became king, says 1 Samuel chapter 10, God gave him another heart, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. It's just an amazing scene. Saul becomes king, and he, he kind of transforms from this rather cowardly figure to a man who's boldly prophesying in the name of the Lord. It's a surprising scene, and people wonder what is going on. They ask this question that becomes kind of the statement, is Saul among the prophets? And we'll see that come up in our text again. Later on, when Saul was told that his line would be cut off and not continue, Samuel says to him, 1 Samuel 13, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So God has found someone else. And the text even gets so stark as to say in 1 Samuel 15, 35, the Lord regretted that he had made king over Israel. It's a pattern in the Bible. God creates something. His creation rejects him. God righteously judges that. And then God starts again. He creates something new. I mean, you see this. Adam and Eve, God creates. They reject him. God righteously judges them. And then he starts things new. The flood, Babel, even the book of Exodus, God creates a people for himself. They reject him. God judges them. And God starts with a new generation as they move into the promised land. God created something. God was rejected by that creature. And God righteously judges. And then in his grace and mercy, he recreates. God established Saul. Saul rejected God. God righteously judged him, cut him off. And then he begins to recreate with the promises he makes to David. And in 1 Samuel 16... Here's the new start. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. As if to confirm what God is doing, the next verse states, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Well, that last line makes us maybe a bit twitchy in our theology. Does this mean that God sent a demon to torment Saul? That's one interpretation, and some have argued that it highlights God's sovereignty even over evil spiritual forces. But it may not be the best interpretation, and it will come up in our story again. Some Bible scholars see in this language a better translation which might look like a spirit of disaster. 
God sent a spirit of disaster with a lowercase s, not necessarily an uppercase s. That's your English Bibles, not the Hebrew. In other words, because Saul has disobeyed and he has rejected God's gracious authority, God gives him over to disaster, which sounds very familiar if you know Romans, the early chapters. And this will be the final chapters of 1 Samuel, the final chapters of Saul, and any chance of his family's reign over Israel is done. God gave him over to a spirit of disaster. Richard Pratt wrote a helpful book about biblical narrative, and he writes that Old Testament writers characterized God as he is, not as their readers may have wanted him to be. I think there's some helpfulness in seeing that, but also some work that we have to do now as we get into our text, because God is seen as a righteous judge. He is orchestrating Saul's downfall, and that's uncomfortable for us, but it paves the way for something even greater. It paves the way for a new thing, a better thing. David, who will pave the way for something even better, which will escalate until we get to Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let's get into our text, because there's a good story here, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. David has just come from nowhere. He's unexpectedly slain the giant Goliath. He's impressed King Saul. He's become best friends with the crown prince, Jonathan. Jonathan, even at the beginning of chapter 18, gives David, who's just a simple shepherd, gives him his robe and armor and sword and belt and bow. Jonathan, the heir to King Saul, the heir to the throne, gives to David, who's really a nobody at this point, the symbols of kingship, a robe. Jonathan gives him his robe. There's something going on there that we'll see more and more. And David starts acting, unlike Saul, he starts acting kingly. He takes on the wicked Philistine. He goes after him. He fights for victory for God's people. Let's look at verse 6. We're finally getting into the text. As they were coming home from the battle with Goliath and the Philistines, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I mean, it's just great. People have been delivered. Their oppressor has been defeated. And they are, for the moment, free. This is not the first time in the Old Testament that a women's choir has celebrated victory. If you remember, the Egyptian army were drowned in the Red Sea as they were pursuing the Israelites. There was, after that, a choir led by Moses' sister, Miriam, who sang these words, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. That's what Miriam and Miriam's choir sings. Now, compare that with what the women of Israel sing here. The Lord has triumphed graciously, Exodus. Saul has struck down. David has struck down. Do you see the difference there in who's being praised in this song? That should be the problem, first off. Where's God in their praise? Where's their gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord who delivered them? Well, there's certainly that. And that does 
perhaps cause us to wonder what's going on in Israel and who's leading Israel. Well, that's Saul. And his people are not giving glory to God like Miriam was. His people are praising him and praising his champion, David. But they're doing it in some rather unusual ways that he does not appreciate fully. The first line is great, Saul probably thinks, but what's with that second line, right? There's certainly some questions of wisdom in what the women were singing. The the difference between thousands and ten thousands would inevitably have been heard by Saul. And just free point of advice here, it's not wise to make kings feel that their position is threatened, particularly unstable kings like Saul. Even more than that, though, the noticeable difference, the noticeable difference is who they are praising. It's not, Miriam does not praise Moses or Aaron or the Israelite soldiers or the Israelite people. They praise God for his victory, and here, God is not acknowledged, and that doesn't bother Saul. People are praised, which Saul probably likes at the start, but then David is praised a little bit more. Ten thousands. I mean, we just saw the last story. David deserves that sort of escalation, doesn't he? He deserves that sort of magnification compared to Saul, but Saul's not ready to acknowledge that. And so here's the result in verse 8. Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000 sin to me. They have ascribed merely thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? If they're saying that, what is he really after? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Listen, those in power don't like to have their position threatened. And when someone is in a position to possibly lay claim to their position, that threat leads to mistrust and potentially, as we'll see here, much, much worse. Saul eyed David from that day on. Uh, For some reason, I'll always associate a particular television show with my in-laws. I don't know why this happened. I think it's just because there were always reruns of this show on at Marianne's parents' home. You know, when we'd be kind of winding down for the night, you'd flip on this show and watch an episode or two. Um, this is back in the day when you had to like find the channel and all that kind of stuff. So, but I, I'll always associate the show Everybody Loves Raymond. Some of you know that. Some of you have no idea who that is. I always associate that show with my parents for various reasons, perhaps. One is that there was a good deal of comparison between some of the characters in the show and my in-laws and family there. But I just have this fond memory of that show. Do you remember the opening lines of the show? So... Raymond is standing there outside. He's raking leaves. His wife, his kids, his parents, his brother pass by. He introduces everybody. And then at the conclusion of the show, as his brother stands there, the ending of that opening, his brother kind of mumbles with maximum baritone annoyance, everybody loves Raymond, right? He is not happy about that. Raymond has everything, right? He's got the wife, the kids, the house, the job, the love of his parents, And then mopey, resentful Brad Garrett really has none of that. Everybody loves Raymond. You can just hear mopey Saul in this passage saying, everybody loves David, right? That's the attitude here, with a lot more anger than Brad Garrett had. And there's a reason. Saul, for Saul, David is the one who has acted like a king, who has been 
confident in God when he's facing his enemies. And David has seen victory. So yes, everybody kind of does love David at this point. I mean, just look at the text here. Later, earlier this, in this uh, chapter, you saw that Saul's own son, the crown prince Jonathan, loves David, and they become best friends. The women's choir puts the crescendo of the song on David's triumph, which makes Saul's victories seem, in comparison, worthless. Later on in 18, chapter 16, we learn that all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. In other words, he was doing something unlike the previous king, Saul, who didn't do much. He was going out and protecting the people from their enemies. Saul did some of that, thousands. David did ten thousands, ten times more than Saul. And the people love him because he is protecting him. He's bringing freedom. He's bringing victory. Later in the chapter, we'll also learn that one of Saul's daughters, Michael, is in love with David, and they marry. Everybody loves David, and Saul does not like this scene. Saul's disobedience to God's command have resulted in the pronouncement that his kingdom would end and his line would not last. And at the same time as his disobedience, God has been raising up a better king who is loved by the people, loved even by Saul's children. That disobedience led to judgment, and now Saul's mind is consumed with jealousy as he feels threatened by David's popularity. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. I love the visual there. It's one of the great things about the writer of the Samuel, writer Samuel. He just has these visuals. You can just see Saul. We have these cats in our house. We have three of them now. And uh, we had one cat that's been there a couple of years, Wanda. And then there was a, a, a cat that arrived at Christmas. Um, long story. Her name is Edith, I believe. And then there's another cat that arrived a few months or weeks later named Norma. And if you've ever had cats that have arrived at different times and you have one cat who's kind of had the, 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 the reign of the house for a while, it's been the queen for, of the house for a while, and then there's a new cat, what does that cat do? She doesn't love, she doesn't embrace, she doesn't accept. She kind of sits there in an aloof spot and just eyes the other cats. And this is Wanda for like 90% of her waking hours, which is about 20 minutes a day. She's just staring at Norma or at Edith waiting for her moment to get rid of them. You can see it in her evil cat eyes. And that's what Saul is doing right there. He's got his eye on David. Saul's disobedience led to judgment, which put Saul in a position of massive jealousy and even fear. What more can he have but the kingdom? Jealousy can start out seemingly innocent and minor. I wish I, wish I had that. That was really nice. I had that look or home or job or ability or funds, but left uncontained, jealousy can lead to truly awful actions. Verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Remember that it doesn't necessarily have to be a, uh, a spirit in terms of a supernatural being. It could be just a spirit or a sense of or an impending disaster. Um, there's some options there, but regardless of how you take that, things are moving in a bad direction for Saul. 
And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in hand. Well, that last line is a little ominous, isn't it? Saul had his spear in hand, this angry, jealous, raving man, obsessively jealous, powerful, ranting and raving about the house, has a spear. That does not sound good. Back in chapter 16, Saul was convinced to hire David in his, as his professional personal musician. The music soothed Saul when he had some episodes. It calmed him down. It generally worked to placate a madman like Saul. But now he's got his spear in hand. David's popularity has risen, and Saul's jealousy and anger has risen correspondingly. Verse 11, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. (laughs) I wish there was a little bit more explanation between the first pinning and then the statement that there was a second attempt. Because I don't know, like, did David run one way, Saul went, grabbed the spear, and then chucked it again at him and somehow missed? God had bigger plans for David. He's taken away the kingdom from Saul. And so David is preserved. David is not skewered by the spear here. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The spear attempt did not work. And before Saul tries it again, and he will shortly, maybe, maybe, maybe rather than just chucking a spear at nimble David, Saul needs to try something a little bit more cunning and intricate than a good old-fashioned skewering. Maybe that would work. So verse 13, Saul removed David from his presence. Get out of here. Fired. Made him a commander of a thousand. Which is a little bit of irony right there. Right? He went out and came in before the people. So David just goes out, starts doing battle, starts protecting the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Who's giving David the victory? Who deserves the praise here? The Lord. The Lord. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Not just eyeing him suspiciously now. He's scared of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is probably not exactly what Saul intended here. If you want to get rid of someone and it doesn't work throwing a spear at them, one option is to send them to war. David apparently learned this strategy and would use it later in his own life when he was king to get rid of a man named Uriah so that he could have his own pleasure and have Bathsheba for himself. But that's a ways down the road. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, let's try something different. Here's my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. I almost think this is a case of if you can't beat them, join them. Or in this case, if you can't skewer them with your spear, marry them into your family. Right? That's kind of what he's doing here. Seems that way, but look at Saul's thoughts in the next lines. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. If I can't get him killed, let's get him over there to the Philistines. They do a pretty good job at killing people. And they're probably not too happy about this guy, David, killing their champion, Goliath. So they'll get the job done. Let's set him up for death. So even though Saul's motives throughout this passage are very clear, jealousy, rage, 
anger, murderous intentions. David's thoughts and motivations at this point aren't described here. But he does respond to this wedding invitation with a pretty humble statement, it seems. Verse 18, David said to Saul, who am I? (laughs) You're David, for crying out loud. Ten thousands, Goliath, remember him? Like, you're David. And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? I think that's a pretty remarkable reaction for a couple reasons. First, Saul had promised wealth, and he had promised his daughter's hand in marriage to whoever would defeat Goliath. So Saul kind of owes David this. But also, at this point, David is not some unknown shepherd boy. He is the giant slayer. He is the commander of an army. He is the bane of the Philistines. He is the much-loved hero of the people of Israel. He would not have been able to walk down the street without some fanfare. And it seems like David has kind of earned his passage into the court of the king. Well, Saul, as he often does, changes his mind about poor Mirab. Verse 19, but at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she's all dressed in the back room, and, you know, she's got a bridesmaid around her, mom's giving her a hug and a final talk, all that kind of stuff. At that time, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife, which is kind of a step down from David, the giant killer, and Saul just changes his mind. And we don't really get a lot of explanation of that. And as we move forward here now, we're going to need to kind of push the gas pedal a little bit to get through this because it's just this whole dynamic, this whole narrative is just going to continue. Mirab, now Saul's daughter, Michael, what loved David. And they told Saul, it's actually the only instance, I think, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where a woman is said to explicitly love a man. Take that one and do what you will with it. They told Saul when the thing pleased him. So Saul's happy. Why? Well, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. I'm going to use my daughter to kill my enemy. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man? I have no reputation. Again, well, it used to be, but not so much anymore. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. That took an odd turn. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul's whole intention here in this marriage is not to bring David into his family. It's to get rid of David. How can I get rid of David? Well, let's go have him attempt the seemingly impossible. And so he asked for this fairly ridiculous bride price. And when his servants told David, verse 26, these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines. I mean, David's always got to just jump it up a bit, right? 200 now. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. I mean, just a beautiful marriage picture here, isn't it? Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife, but... But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, which earlier pleased him because he thought he could get rid of David, now Saul is even more afraid of David. 
So it's gone from jealousy to fear to even more afraid. Saul was David's enemy continually, continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Well, if you can't skewer them, try something else, and things get more violent. So parents, uh, enjoy your Sunday dinner conversations here after this one. The Philistines were a people who did not practice circumcision. They were outside of God's covenant people, although they could enter in and, and join as some who were outside of God's covenant people at that time did. And David wins another victory, yet another victory, slaughters 200 Philistines, gets what he came out there for, and marries Michael, who loves him. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Robert Alter, one commentator, says this, Michael is the only woman in the entire Hebrew Bible explicitly reported to love a man. Nothing is said by contrast about what David feels toward Michael. And as a story of their relationship sinuously unfolds, his feelings toward her will continue to be left in question. So this is not an epic love story here. It's, more, it's another part of the tragedy. It's a sad foreshadowing, even, of David's relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah. The end result is that Saul is even more afraid of David. I mean, look what David can accomplish. The seemingly impossible times two. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And as often as the Philistines came out to battle, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. What do you do now? Let's move on. Because Saul's not done yet, but we're going to take a quick break. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, chapter 19, verse 1, and to all his servants that they should kill David. So he's like, forget about it. Everybody get together, kill David. That's, that's like plan C now, or D, or wherever we're at in the whole plot. He just, like, that didn't work, that didn't work. Now, every one of you, just get David. Get him killed. He's, we need him gone. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. He loves David. He's his friend, dear friend. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. The son seems to betray the father here almost. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place, hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, the son correcting and rebuking the father, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. Who worked a salvation? The Lord did. Not David strictly, it was God. And you, Saul, saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, who was hiding, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David back to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. 
well. There's a temporary peace brokered by Jonathan, and it seems to end well as Saul makes the vow that he will do no harm. David has continued to find military success. Now he's back in Saul's presence. It seems like the situation has resolved. He's with his father-in-law, playing music again. But there was war again. Verse 8. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and once again struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Sometimes I wonder reading this, how many Philistines were there in that day, right? I mean, there, there can only be like three of them left over at this point, it seems. David has this great victory. What happens to Saul? A harmful spirit, a spirit of destruction from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but once again he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Another failed spear chucking, then a last-minute escape with the help of love-struck Michael, who, if you read the next few sections, I'm not going to read that passage there from 11 through 17. Michael covers for David, and Saul sends his men who he's recruited to kill David. Michael does the classic, let's just uh, dress up the bed to look like there's somebody in there, let's claim sickness, and then uh, when they find out David's not there, I'll just say, well, he forced me to do it, and that's what happens there. Then, verse 18 Now, David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel was a prophet, remember, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Saul's sending hitmen after David, and these hitmen are winding up just overcome by the Spirit of the Lord and prophesying about God's greatness, his covenant, something. It doesn't really give us the definition there, but the change in these hitmen is quite staggering. Then, 22, he himself, Saul himself, went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Suku. And he asked, where are Saul, Samuel, and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Whoa. And he went, and as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Well, maybe, maybe things are changing. Maybe Saul's like, you know, on God's good side again here. Verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? When Saul was coronated, that line was used to to almost affirm Saul's position as given by God. Here, it's used as a mocking gesture because of Saul's condition at the end. David flees to Samuel. There's a prophecy convention going on, apparently. When we hear prophecy, we tend to think foretelling, right? Crystal ball, tea leaves, you know, God is going to do this. And there is some of that in 
Old Testament prophecy. But the reality is that Old Testament prophets most frequently reminded God's people of his past actions, of God's covenant with them, and the terms of God's covenant. Prophets reminded people of God's faithfulness and God's word and their call to obey it. Prophetic utterances did that most often. Read through Isaiah, read through Jeremiah, and you'll find that a lot more than in the town of Bethlehem there shall be born that sort of prophecy. That's there, but it's a small fraction of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is usually not a prediction of the future, though there is that, somewhat. Prophecy is a reminder of God's word. So, let me just step back for just a second, and I know this is getting a little longer here. We're getting close. Here at Cross of Grace, we believe that the gift of prophecy is a gift for the church today. Um, Some of you, including myself, grew up in settings where you were told that's not true. It was for back then. We actually have a mic here that I've heard called the participation mic, but sometimes actually called the prophecy mic. And Some of you may not have known that if you're new here. Um, we believe that God, Spirit, moves God's people to remind us of his word, of his covenant. And if you've been here when someone has come to that mic and shared something, the most usual thing that happens is somebody just opens their Bible and reads a scripture and says, somebody needs to hear this today. And I think every time, somebody needs to hear it. And it's been me sometimes that just, I needed to hear that word, that reminder of God's covenant faithfulness or my call to obedience or whatever that was. That was a prophetic word given by God to his people to remind them of God's faithfulness and God's word. Now, there's also this little thing that you may not see on the bottom, which is a kill switch. Okay? And there's a reason we have that, because not every prophecy is good. Here you see it. The Spirit of God came upon Saul also, and as he went, he prophesied, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Now, that's why we have a kill switch right there, and why we've got guys ready to tackle you and escort you out if that sort of thing happens. So, let me just give you a brief word of caution here, a brief word of caution. Don't build your pneumatology, your theology of the Holy Spirit or the spiritual gifts exclusively off of Old Testament narrative texts, okay? John 3, 8, Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is some mysterious, marvelous, unexpected movements of the Spirit, and we don't script what is said there, like we script our songs or like I script the bulk of this sermon. God's spirit sometimes just moves people to share. And let me just encourage you guys. If, if you feel that on a Sunday morning, there's always one of the pastors up here. Come up here and say, hey, just throwing this out there. I'm looking at whatever verse it is, and I think the Lord might want me to share it with the congregation. And we'll kind of vet that a little bit and signal the worship team and then allow you to speak with the kill switch in case things go off the rails there. But um, see, I grew up in like a cessationist thing, so I always got to emphasize that part. And still a little uncomfortable here. <clears throat> but it's so good. We need that. This is not just people from the stage speaking. It's, it's 
Prophecy is for God's people. We need to hear and be reminded of that. But don't build all of your pneumatology or the agenda of your prophecy conference based on this passage because there's, a, there's strange stuff happening here. We don't even know exactly what is happening, and it's never described. You always, you're just left with a sense of wonder. All you know is at the end, Saul is prophesying, which seems good, but he's lying naked for about 24 hours, which is a symbol in the Old Testament of shame. It's a symbol of the removal of kingship because his robe has been removed. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, were shameless when they were naked with each other. After they sinned, found shame before God. Noah, after his drunken revelry, after coming off the ark, wound up in shameful nakedness. And even Jesus on the cross hung naked, adding to his shame and the cruelty of Roman crucifixion. Michael, earlier, uh, one commentator says, covered David's bed with his clothes. Saul, at the end, strips off his clothes and lies naked all day and night, a graphic picture of how the narrator has hidden David's motives and bears Saul throughout these last two chapters. The mighty have fallen. Saul has dressed David in the king's armor, which symbolically gives David some level of kingship. Jonathan has given David his cloak, which kind of gives Jonathan's affirmation towards David's kingship. Michael has even covered kind of fake David in the bed with clothes. And Saul lies naked and shamed. So, Let me try to collect all the pieces here and bring this thing together. Saul, throughout this passage, starts as jealous of David and winds up deeply fearful of David. Because of his disobedience, kingship has been taken from him, and at the end of the passage, he lies in a state of shame. And he's mocked with the same words that he was affirmed earlier. Saul's bad motives are clear throughout this chapter. But there's there's more jealousy in this chapter, perhaps, than you realize. God here is a jealous God. He protects his anointed one. He protects his true king. Deuteronomy 4, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And Joshua said to his people in in the book of Joshua, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forget your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after you have done good. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. God is jealous for his own glory and will protect his king. David, whose motives aren't really given to us in this passage... But if you read Psalm 59 in your spare time, which is a psalm of David after he had escaped from Saul, you find that David's motives are good. He had more success, his name was highly esteemed, and David longed for God's name to be glorified. Saul, remember the song, Saul has slain his thousands, Saul self-consumed. David longed for God's glory. Later, David would say, for zeal for your house consumes me, consumes me. And God protects his king 
so that his name can be glorified. But what do we do with these stories? Let me give you two quick things. One, heed the warning. Jealousy leads to ruin. Jealousy leads to active sins of theft and violence and even murder here, or murderous attempts. There's no shortage of examples. You just look up crimes of jealousy on Google, or better yet, don't, but just trust me, there are a lot of them. Jealousy leads to ruin. The alternative to jealousy is contented obedience. Contented obedience leads to happiness, to blessedness throughout Scripture. Not necessarily a life of ease, but a life of joy. Unrestrained, jealous disobedience leads to deeper and deeper tragedy and ruin. Saul's life at this point has become an aching tragedy, and it will continue for the next few chapters as he just, it's awful. All he had to do was obey God's good commands, and he would find success. But so many little compromises in his life mounted up, and Saul now has become a murderous monster filled with jealous rage. And at the end of this passage, God has shamed him and is taking the crown away from him. Contented obedience leads to happiness. Unrestrained, jealous disobedience leads to deeper and deeper tragedy and ruin. Listen, jealousy will kill you. Well, we hear this, and we likely acknowledge, yeah, I need to not be so jealous of things. But then it's really hard to administer that in our own lives, isn't it? We, and I think this is all of us, live jealous lives. Like, you, you will find something to be envious or jealous of today, if you haven't already, right? You pulled into the parking lot, and you're like, ooh, that car looks, I really want that car. What do I have to do to get that car? Is there anything I can, and you just kind of see how things escalate for that. Many of you know that a, a few of us started playing pickleball this year, and I tend to be all in on a new hobby, but... Um, I still hit the pickleball court with a uh, hand-me-down racket that I was given by my mom, which is uh, not the most uh, amazing thing to say, right? So every once in a while, I find my gaze lingering on someone else's $250 Jula or high-end Selkirk with more than a simple twinge of jealousy, where I'll find myself just kind of hovering around the ever-glowing wall of paddles at Shields. Now, unrestrained, and I have to restrain myself, unrestrained, where would that lead? I mean, potentially, you know, some foolish expenditures, according to my wife. Um, Even worse, theft. I mean, if I just let it go, maybe even violence, right? And I I think Pollock, when we go to play tonight, might look over his shoulder a little bit suspiciously of me now after this. But that's what jealousy does, is it just consumes us if we don't do something about it. Where does jealousy surface from you? You look at somebody else's kids and their behavior, you're like, well, I wish my kids behaved that way. What do I have to do? You look at somebody else's house, somebody else's money, somebody else's vehicle, somebody else's vacation, somebody else's looks, somebody else's grades, somebody else's success. It will kill you. It will kill you. But contented obedience will lead to happiness. So here's the second thing in this passage. Heed the warning, but hear the grace. God will accomplish his plan to provide a better king. David is not killed in this passage in spite of repeated attempts and maneuvering. God is preserving his king, not just for Israel for the next few years, but to provide a king from David's line who will eternally save his people from their greatest enemies, 
not the Philistines, from Satan, from sin and death. A king who will reign eternally on a throne that oversees all of creation, not just a small country in the eastern Mediterranean. And it is in this king that we find grace, and that we find grace for our jealous, envy-filled lives as we place our trust and find contentment in him because his blood pays the price for our disobedience. You cannot just turn off jealousy. You have to find something better. And Jesus is that better king. Run to him. Jesus is the infinitely better king than Saul, David, Solomon, or any other ruler. And he alone can eternally save his people. God, from the opening pages of Scripture, was committed to providing the king for his people, one who would crush the serpent's head, would be a blessing to the nations, and who would reign on David's throne forever. And folks, we have that sort of king in Jesus. Find your joy and your contentment in him. Crush any spirit of jealousy in your heart by looking to Jesus and looking to all the things that he's given us. So many good things. You don't have to live these jealous, envious life. God has provided a king. Practice gratitude and thankfulness and contentment. If nothing else, you have Christ. But there's so much more. This morning I got up, like, it's cold out there, but man, look how beautiful it is. Look, I get to, like, breathe in that beautiful, clean air and see the beauty of this day. I get to join a community of Christ-loving friends. We have so much to be thankful for. But even if we had none of that, even if we have none of that, we have a new covenant under an eternal king, Jesus. You have everything you need. Live obedient, contented lives in Christ. Kill jealousy in your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at other people, at other things, and... Just like Saul, we start eyeing them. Eyeing them with envy, eyeing them as threats. And so we, this morning, repent. We confess our sin. In Christ, you have given us everything we need. We have no reason to be discontent. We have Christ. And we have so much more, but we have Christ. And so would you fill our hearts with the joy of being found in Christ and help us to kill our jealous and our envy. We pray these things in his name. Amen.